Welcome to the Aspen UK podcast, where we bring people together to discuss topics that matter. Hello and welcome to this special edition of the Aspen UK podcast. I'm Penny Richards, the head of the Aspen Institute in the UK, and it's our great pleasure to share a conversation that was part of a launch of the Aspen Institute Next Gen Report on Transatlantic Relations. The deeply rooted transatlantic relationship shared between European countries and the United States has been built on common history and a shared set of democratic values, but many people fear it faces new challenges. With rising autocracy, growing economic insecurity, climate threats, and the rapid development of technology, what is the transatlantic's relationship in responding to these challenges? The Aspen Institute's international partners, of which Aspen UK is one, convened a next-gen network of millennials and Generation Z, or Z, from across the US and Europe for a forensic look at these questions and others. And as you'll hear, they concluded that many issues remain crucial for a prosperous transatlantic relationship and a democratic world. They include the need to strengthen democracy, build economic opportunity, increase sustainability efforts, and focus on the development of positive technology. In this special podcast, please join us to hear the next generation's perspectives on the transatlantic relationship from them and through the eyes of their report, which is called Making It Durable, Renewing the Transatlantic Relationship. Their conversation is led by Suzanne Lynch, a journalist from Politico Europe and the co-author of the Brussels Playbook Morning Newsletter. We hope you enjoy it. So uh, just some introductions, first of all, and thank you very much for all being here. Um, so we have on our panel today, uh, Adrian Shabazz. He's Director of Technology and Democracy for the Freedom House, and he heads the organization's research and policy on human rights in the digital age. He's lead author for Freedom on the Net, which is an annual report on global internet freedom, as well as the founder of Election Watch for the Digital Age, a data-driven initiative tracking the risk of censorship, disinformation, and violence ahead of national elections. We have Beatrice Camacho. Um, she is the ecosystem manager for the regional innovation scheme uh, in Southern Europe at the European Institute of Innovation and Technology. Um, she is a senior project manager. Before her career in issues around climate innovation, she was a political science professor and undertook uh, her PhD research in political representation and social research techniques. She is currently based in Valencia and is a fellow at the Aspen Institute with the Next Generation Transatlantic Initiative. Um, we are also joined uh, by Casper, sorry, bear with me, Casper Klinge, who's uh, Vice President of European Government Affairs for Microsoft. Casper um, also had a very long, illustrious career. He served as Denmark's tech ambassador in Silicon Valley, but is also ambassador of Denmark to Indonesia, Timor-Leste, Papua New Guinea, and Cyprus. Um, he has held various positions within uh, the Danish Ministry of Foreign Affairs, um, as well as deputy head of NATO's multinational Helmand provincial reconstruction team in Afghanistan. And earlier in his career, he also uh, worked in Brussels with the General Secretariat of the Council of the Ministers of uh, the EU. So thank you very much to everyone uh, for joining us. Um, just to just bear with me here one moment, just technically. 
Um, just make sure I can see everyone. Thank you. Okay, so um, Adrian, maybe we'll start with yourself. Um, you know, your work and, and your interest is in this whole area of democracy. Um, we, during our discussions and for this report, when we were examining uh, the importance of the transatlantic relationship, we also looked at some of the threats to that. Um, and one of that, one of those was the rise of authoritarianism um, and how Europe and the US can counter that. How much of a threat is that? Um, what are your views on, on where things stand at the moment for uh, this next generation when it comes to trans, the transatlantic relationship and those issues of democracy? Well, thank you, Suzanne. And thank you to, uh, to Aspen and uh, Microsoft for, uh, for organizing and supporting this and also to all of the, the next gen fellows uh, who I had the pleasure of, of just chatting with uh, over a few times last year. So, um, you know, as you mentioned, Suzanne, one of the resounding takeaways from our discussions, and, and this is in our report, was uh, the importance of shared values in the transatlantic relationship. The trouble is, and this was, you know, very apparent uh, on all sides, is that these values are now in decline. Um, not only globally, you know, Freedom House has, uh, has shown that there's been a 15 consecutive years of decline in political rights and civil liberties around the world, but we also discuss, you know, within the United States and Europe, how we've seen rising illiberalism, uh, nativism, and, and isolationism that is leading to uh, many different incidents. You know, we, we talked about racial justice issues in the United States, of course, the shocking events in January 6th, um, and also, you know, the, the deterioration of independent institutions in places like Hungary and Poland. So after we spoke, uh, there's just been, you know, Current events have not let up at all, and now we've we've seen numerous crises on Europe's eastern borders. Um, you know, first you had uh, Belarus, um, you know, the brutal dictator there, forcing a plane to land to to kidnap an exiled activist and journalist. Not to mention the repression against uh, around the the flawed uh, election, and now of course the escalation of violence in Ukraine um, by the Russian government. To see what what will happen there, you know, in the coming weeks. So it's apparent that while, you know, we talk about shared values and the importance of it, in practice, we're not seeing these values upheld, uh, both, in, both by politicians which are elected in the US and the European Union, as well as around the world. Um, and I, I think that the big thing that came out too was that the importance of the, that there's so much importance now on the, on the transatlantic relationship, given the rise of China. I think that you know, over the past couple of decades, China now plays a, a very important role in the international system. It is shaping uh, norms around uh, and promoting its norms around digital authoritarianism and non-interference in, in uh, domestic affairs, which is having a, a very negative effect on uh, d prospects for democracy and human rights around the world. So, you know, just to set the stage that our discussions were really, you know, a little bit pessimistic around whether these, you know, these kind of notions that we've held to be uh, to be true around the shared values in the transatlantic relationship. But there's so much work that needs to be done uh, right now in terms of making sure that both the U.S. and the EU are defending these values uh, within their own uh, homes, 
and also playing a more uh, a greater role internationally in pushing back against uh, authoritarian influence and also building up greater resilience against uh, against authoritarian intrusions. Yeah, I mean, it's it's, it's so interesting, Casper. I mean, when, since we've been, um, sorry, I mean, Adrian, but since we've been um, speaking, you know, this issue of, the, there's been question marks about the strength of the transatlantic relationship, particularly after the withdrawal from Afghanistan at the end of the summer, and then the tensions over the AUKUS defense deal and those tensions between France and America, for example. There's been a concern, uh, you know, I spent my first half of the year in America, I, I was living there and I came back in the second half of last year to Brussels after an interlude. And I, you know, there, there is a, a worry, I think, in Brussels um, about, you know, since the Trump administration, there was a hope that this would be the great return to a, a deep relationship between America and Europe under Joe Biden. And it hasn't quite worked out that way. And I think what you mentioned there about China is, is, is a hugely important backdrop here in terms of issues around democracy, but also issues around climate change, sustainability, issues around technology. Um, but, you know, how committed is America to the transatlantic relationship? That is a big question I think people are, are asking now. It came up um, in the last few weeks over the Russian-Ukraine crisis when it became obvious that Moscow really just wants to deal with, with Washington and, and the European Union. I mean, whatever for NATO, but the European Union was not at a lot of the meetings where those decisions have been made. So it is a bit of a, a moment, I think, of reflection about where this transatlantic relationship is going. I mean, Casper, what's your views? I mean, are you positive about the state of the transatlantic relationship at the moment, or do you think there are challenges to it? Yeah, no, well, first of all, thanks a lot for, for having me and, and congratulations to the Aspen Institute and also to the next generation for, for the report produced. I have to say it's sort of a little bit with mixed feelings that I'm invited to this because I realize I'm the oldest one both on the panel and, you know, invited to comment on next generation reports means that I'm not part of the next generation, but, you know, we'll, uh, we'll leave it at that. I think Adrian and to some extent you, Susan, you're pointing to to the reality, and, and I think actually the report also shows shows that that we've had a, a dip in um, in sort of transatlantic uh, feelings uh, during the Trump administration. I think there were a lot of expectations with the Biden administration coming in, but I think there was also a little bit of hesitation in Europe. And I, I sit in Brussels uh, most of the days in grey weather, like you do, Susan, and I think we felt that there was a need for you know the transatlantic uh, relationship to resurface and shows show results to sort of build that confidence again so i think one of the reasons why why the project uh, is important and why this report is important is we, we actually need to nurture that relationship it, it's not necessarily there all the time at the same strength that we've seen in the past so i, I actually think the the next generation of leaders and and also the answers that you put into into the survey is a good reminder to all of us that we have to do our part to to make that happen now that's it um, and i think the report actually shows both when you look at, at the values that are most important for Europeans and we look at the ones that are most important for the Americans, and then you look at the ones that are sort of pointing to the future, you know, the relationship is actually not perhaps in a better uh, state than, than what we what we uh, tend to discuss uh, on, on a day-to-day -day basis. And I think when, when we look ahead, there seems to be consensus around both, you know, climate change, around security issues, about technology issues. Um, but I do think, and, and, and similarly to what Adrian said, that we are in, a, in an important moment um, and you're representing a big technology company. I'm not going to hide the fact that I think technology plays an incredibly important role in this. 
both in terms of sort of trust in our institutions, trust in technology. I think what we're seeing in, in Ukraine is, of course, also an indication that, you know, cybersecurity is, is no longer sort of a theoretical aspect. It's something that has a direct impact on, uh, on the real world. So I think the bottom line is that whether we represent the private sector, civil society, media, or, or government or international institutions, we need to lean in and we need to invest in the transatlantic relationship. I'm a firm believer in it. I think we need it. I think the world needs it. Uh, but we, we need to do a little bit more to get it back on track. Yeah, um, Casper, you just picked up something I was going to go to next, which was a big theme of our discussions. Beatrice, I will come to you afterwards, but just, just before I get to you, which was technology. The role of technology here and the responsibility of tech companies, the responsibility of governments. And, um, you know, Adrian, I might bring you you in on this because I know you, you do a lot about um, the whole issue of disinformation as well. Um, but, you know, the the one of the things we found in the report was that there was a difference. I mean, not to generalize too much, there were different perspectives between what America thinks and, and, and what Europe, on things like privacy, on the right to privacy, on what is the appropriate level of regulation. And we've seen that over the last few years with a lot of tension between the Washington and Brussels, even under the Obama era, um, where you know President Obama, for example, criticized the European Commission for taking too strong of a stance against what he saw at American tech companies. Um, now, things have changed, and that I think there's been a, a big change in America. There's been a more of a bipartisan support for greater regulation of tech companies for different reasons, but there is. Um, but Adrian, just maybe you come in on that, on the on the role of, of technology and disinformation and how much of a threat that is um, for, for this issue. Yes, certainly so. Um, you're right that, uh, you know, Europe and, and the United States obviously have different views, as, particularly as it relates to regulation, um, you know, regulation of speech, as you mentioned, disinformation, but also regulation of privacy. I think it's just important to, to kind of take a step back and realize that whatever differences that Europe and the United States have, our differences with China or Russia or even India to a certain extent are, are far greater. And so I think that, you know, we can't get lost in some of the, the, the squabbles around, um, you know, the role of, of government in regulating technology companies when I think it's very important just to to realize that the trans we need to be leading uh, the transatlantic relationship uh, has this opportunity to set the standards around um, digital technology, and if if Europe and the United States are are not doing this, then China will will essentially be leaving, uh, be leading that. So I, I think that perhaps there's sort of like a yin and yang approach uh, where, you know, the U.S., I think, has been generally uh, leading the way when it comes to technological innovation. Uh, and then the, on the European side, uh, you know, when it comes to regulatory capacity, the ability to produce legislation like the, the Digital Services Act and the Digital Markets Act. I think that both, uh, both the EU and the U.S. have their strengths. And I think that what needs to happen is instead of producing conflict that we need to de-escalate that. I think that it's great to see things like the Technology Council, uh, Technology and Trade Council coming up. And I am somewhat optimistic that there will be greater collaboration between democracies on this issue, because I think it's, you know, to be frank, it's needed just given the real fundamental differences that we have uh, with, you know, officials in the Chinese Communist Party 
who uh, are have very different views around the role of technology in, in governance. Yeah, and that was one of the findings, Adrian, as you point out, the need, I think all participants, we, we, we were delving into these kind of differences of approaches, but the need for more alignment, um, that that would help structure and cement the transatlantic reliance, that, that the relationship, that that needs to change and evolve to reflect the reality of our modern world with the role of technology and, and, and quite frankly, the negative role of technology um, in, you know, fomenting, um, you know, false narratives, um, theories of election fraud, et cetera. It's, it's now the primary tool that's been used um, to cut across democracy. Casper, do you want to come in on anything on that? I mean, just are the tech companies, is there more of a, do they see their, their role here that this is now becoming a, a something that they need to step up to? Uh, at, at this moment? I think most companies do that today. Uh, I think I'll also be honest in saying perhaps not all companies to the degree that I think is necessary, but but I think you know the majority of sort of mature uh, companies are seeing the societal responsibility today does not only lie with, with public officials or with governments or international organizations because of the influence we have over you know a digital future we have to make sure that we also through the technology we develop and deploy that we help protect democracy that we protect fundamental rights etc i think adrian is is pointing to of course some of the concerns about the misuse of new technology and a lot of that is of course related to to the role of social media you know instigating fake news disinformation you know stirring things up I, I do want to, and, and it doesn't come naturally to, to a Dane to be optimistic, I, I do also want to sort of make a small plea in saying that I think we shouldn't lose sight of the fact of the fantastic opportunities that technology can also provide. I mean, we're meeting today, despite sitting in, in many different places, I think where we look back at the last couple of years with the global pandemic, you know, had this happened five, six, seven years ago, I think our economies our jobs would have been in a much more dire situation than they are today. So, so I think like with everything else in life, it's sort of a mixed bag where technology offers opportunities, but it can also be misused in the hands of the wrong people. But I do think, and I think that's the bottom line, that we are waking up to a reality where we cannot hide and not pretend that we have to be part of the of the solution. And I, again, I, I think, you know, I had an experience uh, many years ago with not with the Aspen Institute, but with the German Marshall Fund, where I had the opportunity to travel to the US and spend five weeks uh, traveling in different parts of the US. And I think building that understanding across the Atlantic, where there might be differences on some issues, you know, privacy, national security are, are good examples, but where I fundamentally believe that the shared values keeps us much stronger together. And I think building those bridges and making sure that we have a common understanding, even on issues that we dis disagree with is incredibly important. And the last point, Susanna, I'll let promise to, to stop talking, is, is I think whether you work again in the private sector or in the public sector, we actually have a shared interest in making sure that the US and, and, and Europe is getting closer together, including on the regulatory agenda. Thanks. Yeah, it's a, it's a big topic. We might come back to it slightly a, a bit later. Um, Beatrice, I just wanted to bring you in here, um, given your expertise. Uh, the issue of sustainability was a big discussion point. And, um, you know, climate change, energy efficiency, sustainability um, were all priorities, were all seen as a huge importantly, important part of the transatlantic relationship. I mean, what were your main takeaways uh, from um, our discussions and from this report? 
Thank you, Suzanne, and also to the Aspen Institute and Microsoft for making this uh, possible. Um, well, uh, we are talking now about the collaboration uh, between uh, the public and uh, the private sector. And maybe I can continue on this because uh, uh, both the American and the European colleagues uh, in the workshops agreed that private investment, uh, uh, leadership and advocacy are necessary to address the climate emergency. However, uh, we could notice some differences, and I think that's something expected uh, since there's a cultural element here. And at a general level, we have different ideas about the roles of the private sector and the public sector at both sides of the Atlantic. Um, but I think uh, maybe it's because of the uh, generation factor here. Uh, we all have lived the 2008 financial crisis and the consequences. Uh, so uh, we what our discussion uh, replicated what uh, we are seeing now and it's what i what i like to call an europeanization of the usa because we are seeing that with biden uh, administration public investment is a big thing now with the american uh, job plan the infrastructure plan so we are seeing a bigger role of the public sector in the rebuilding of the of the american economy after covid-19 and on the other side there's the Americanization of the UE, of the European Union, uh, because uh, we are seeing that governments are making a firm commitment to combating climate change, but this is going to require a huge investment. And we do know that the private sector will need to deliver a substantial percentage of the total cost. And I, I was checking some sources and uh, about the whole European Union, we're talking at least of 1 trillion uh, euros. And from the public sector, we will need to mobilize 280 billion uh, euros to make this possible. So the challenge is there. And here, I think we can get inspired by this American spirit about, uh, you know, uh, more room for, for the private initiative. And, and maybe just another issue that we discuss on, on this, and is that, um, um, Private companies have a role, regardless of the public uh, initiatives. Uh, and we discuss about the role of uh, fossil fuel producers. Uh, uh, we cannot forget that the 20 largest fossil fuel companies are responsible for the 35% of global emissions from the 60s to 2018. And last May, and I remember we discussed this in, in the workshops, we have uh, what happened to Exxon and the coup that they have at the uh, at the board. Uh, so they, I mean, two members were replaced and uh, it, it was uh, to work towards a greener strategy of the company. And we're talking about Exxon. And the very same day, a Dutch court ordered Royal Dutch Shell to reduce the carbon emissions by 45% by 230. So again, there's a lot that can be done uh, just by uh, the private companies. Yes, uh, Beatrice, you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, that's one of the themes about, you know, where does responsibility lie um, for sustainability? And, and you're absolutely right. We discussed some, you know, how things have changed. A lot of these American corporations, energy companies now taking that extremely seriously. Um, I mean, one of the things I think we spoke about was, uh, you mentioned before, about like, you know, how confident the EU is doing its Green Deal um and it's fit for 55 package and you know we we had cop late last year 
And, you know, there's a sense that if we stand back, Europe is, is a leader in climate change, at least compared to the other big polluters. Um, but it's going to take a lot. Like the proof now is, is in the pudding. There, there, there's all these plans. Um, but now, as you say, there's a lot of money involved. I mean, do you think, you know, do you think, are you hopeful about what's going to happen in Europe? Or are you more hopeful? Or, or do you welcome the fact the Biden administration, for example, is putting a lot of emphasis on, on climate? I'm optimistic, um, and I think uh, the transatlantic uh, leadership is key here because I think we can help each other. Whenever the European Union fails in commitments or in implementation, I think we can use uh, the American example to give us a, a nudge and vice versa. Uh, and we saw it in COP26 in Glasgow, for example, when Biden uh, launched the, the, um, the pledge to reduce uh, methane uh, emissions. Um, and, um, and again, I'm a practitioner. So as you know, I implement uh, a European program uh, dedicated to fight climate change. And I do work every day with the stakeholders, with the ones that get the European funds and implement the programs. And uh, I mean, it's a real challenge because one thing is to set the policies and even this needs to be approved by the national parliament and that's a challenge on one side and the, on the other side you need to implement and get the results and here you need uh, to engage uh, citizens and uh, you know uh, um, non-profits etc uh, and I think there's a, a big margin to improve here, both in the US and European Union. And we saw it in France with the, uh, the revolts in 2018. So we yeah. can do it. And we need both sides of the Atlantic to make sure that we get it on time. Yeah, it's a good point, Beatrice, because one of the themes that we touched on is in the report, and uh, maybe Adrian, you come in on this, it is the role of civil society. And, you know, maybe that is also uh, feeding into what Federica said at the beginning, which is about, she, she implied this, that, that, that this disconnect with the new generation and how are they going to engage with the transatlantic relationship? And we see, you know, we do see distrust in institutions sometimes, but part of that is increasing the voice of civil society. Um, Adrian, I mean, is that something you see as important um, for the promotion and, and, and the protection of, of democracy? Yeah, I think it's fundamental. Uh, I really do think that it's it's up to each generation to build, uh, you know, it support and the legitimacy and credibility of, of governing institutions of, of civil society and, and even, you know, shaping um, the the attitudes and, and the the actions of corporations. Um, this is, I think that this is very much a, a generation that is open to that challenge. Uh, that is globally connected in a way that previous generations perhaps have not been. And that I think is, is helping to create this type of global civil society movement where uh, groups that are based in, in Europe uh, can easily share notes and, and coordinate with uh, those based in the United States. But also that a lot of that uh, sharing and information collection happens uh, beyond just the transatlantic relationship, that we are so much more connected to developing countries, to those in the global south, 
understanding what are the issues that they're running up against, what are the ways that we, you know, that the the actions of uh, democracies are unintentionally creating problems, you know, around the global south, especially technology. That's something where, you know, when when Casper mentioned the the sort of negative impact of social media, that's something and, and disinformation. We had been tracking this for uh, over a decade just because we knew how much it was having a negative effect on the politics of uh, of different countries around the world. And so when it, you know, when it showed up in 2016 in the United States, it didn't come as a surprise. And to be frank, I think that we just collectively need to be more perceptive around uh, the impact of technology on, on politics and human rights around the world, because many of these same issues are, are then coming back to roost uh, within our, our democracies. And so it's very important that, uh, that you know, the EU and the United States have programs where they are providing support and also you know, communicating with their partners around the world because many of these issues are, are global problems. Uh, they will require global solutions. Climate change is obviously one of the big ones, but I think also on technology, it's important that you know, when the United States and the EU are moving forward, in you know creating a, a framework for shared values and, and regulatory coordination that they bring other democracies together with them and also you know countries that are that are not yet democratic because the the real power of the internet is its global nature that wherever you are you know whether you're in Saudi Arabia or Eswatini you know you can connect to this global network and have access to the same resources and opportunities that come if you were based you know, out of uh, Savannah, Georgia. So it's, it's, it's fundamental that we, you know, that we remember that, you know, even if we have the rise of authoritarian powers, that democracy, openness, uh, these are universal values that are highly regarded by people all around the world. And that the, the systems that we create need to be open and we should not be, you know, sort of walling ourselves off out of fears of, you know, that China or other authoritarian powers might uh, might interfere in our own systems. Yeah, so embrace the, the positives in a sense, even though that, you know, the, the, some of these principles are so under threat. Yeah, um, we're, we're just going to bring in a couple of, um, of questions here. Um, and um, we're going to, to hear from two of our next gen members, Zach and Savannah, I believe, if they're on the line, as it were. Yes, can you hear me okay? Yes, that's wonderful. Savannah, yeah. Yes, great. Well, it's it's wonderful to, to see you all. Um, what an impressive conversation. Uh, not surprised hearing these conversations over the summer with our wonderful cohort. Um, it was really an honor to be able to join you all. Uh, really quickly, I want to just ask the panel something that we discussed more in the lens of non-security threats and non-traditional security elements and something that I think is really relevant in this conversation. As the security threats in the transatlantic communities continue to grow, we see continued economic insecurity. Within this transatlantic initiative, um, we see global economic shocks throughout the world following the impact of COVID-19. We see the global she session, as they're calling it. Uh, so uh, my question to the panelists would be, what role should the transatlantic relationship have in building economic opportunity, particularly for women and girls? And what role can transatlantic partners realistically put into place? Okay, thanks very much, Savannah. Um, any one of our panelists want to come in there? Um, 
I mean, maybe Catherine, I'll come to you, but ju just first of all, I mean, I was involved with this conversation about economic opportunity and uh, during our, our workshops. And I think the van is making a good point. Now, in our recommendations, I think we did find that participants didn't necessarily see this as one of the biggest elements, but it arguably the biggest relationship. I mean, between Europe and America is an economic one. The trade, I don't have the figures now, but it's one of the biggest trading partnerships in the world, if not the biggest, I think, between the EU and America. Um, and, you know, how that can help people. I mean, Adrian, you, you, you touched on it there, I think, by talking about the positives of technology, how they can open up the world and they can increase um, opportunities. Casper, anything on that? I mean, do you think it's important to keep that in mind for policymakers, for corporations, that people don't feel left behind, particularly maybe women and girls, in, in, in terms of economic opportunity? Yeah, no, absolutely. I think it's a great question from Savannah. Thanks a lot for, for posing it. Um, let me say a couple of positive things, and I'll turn to, to the question, because I think, you know, Savannah, you're pointing to one of the areas where we're not where we need to be. I think the positive thing, if we begin with the, with the transatlantic relationship, is that Perhaps it, it, it is on the two issues that you identify in your report looking forward, so the climate change and the role around technology. I think you could say that it has historically not been as closely uh, together as it is currently. I think, you know, we saw with Secretary Kerry visiting Brussels, a lot of interest in how the EU and the US can work together around the sustainability agenda, carbon adjustment mechanisms, discussing basically how you can bring down uh, you know, carbon emissions uh, to to promote uh, you know sustainability more broadly. I think the same you could you could argue around the technology agenda, where we have seen the establishment of the Trade and Technology Council, um, a number of working groups. We have seen the first meeting in Pittsburgh that I think was extremely well received on both sides of the Atlantic. And I would say, generally speaking, I think there is a convergence on the regulatory agenda between uh, DC and, and Brussels. Does that mean that, that both sides agree on everything? No, they don't. But I do think there is an interest and actually we may have uh, lost Casper there um anyone else want to come in I mean maybe Beatrice just on the issue of the women and, and girls opportunity I mean is there a role here on the sustainability side of things on this uh yeah I mean um when I was listening to Savannah and Casper I mean we cannot when we are talking about climate change we are talking about economy I think it's, 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 it's something that we cannot separate. And uh, one of the things that we discussed, and it's in the report, it's uh, about uh, just transition. And it's uh, so fighting climate change, it's about creating jobs in, in the new technologies and, and that are going to be used to, to transform our economies. And here, the element, you, you mentioned girls, women, but also like, I mean, workers in, in uh, fortuneful sectors that are going to lose their jobs, we need to find a place for them. So I think climate change is given an opportunity to fix old issues, like what's the role of women in technological sectors, for example, uh, but also an opportunity to make sure that no one is left uh, behind, which is uh, uh, 
um, something that uh, needs to be considered by our governments, because if not, um, public opinion will not support the measures that will be taken to implement uh, uh, the Green Deal at both sides of the Atlantic. Yeah, I mean, it's a very good point. Um, just maybe briefly, Adrian, on that, like, you know, I suppose what Patrice, you're explaining in a way is the Trump effect. You know, the, the idea if you if you leave people behind economically, um, there are going to be political implications to that. Um, and that is a big debate happening in here in Europe, also in America, about the, the just transition, as you say, about who's going to be most affected. How do we help them out of it? Countries like Poland. I mean, Poland is an example of it's a, it's a, a bit of a problem child at the moment for the European Union because it is breaching rule of law standards. It's in constant conflict with Brussels. It's also the country that's going to be probably most affected by this transition, climate transition, because it's so dependent on coal. So, um, you know, in terms of participation, I mean, Adrian, anything there on how, you know, how voters can get disillusioned and, you know, the importance of keeping them engaged? Certainly, yeah, I, I really appreciate uh, Savannah's question and, and uh, Beatrice's point there about uh, those left behind. Um, and I think, you know, as, as Beatrice mentioned, this is the generation which uh, came through the, the 2008 economic crisis, oftentimes, you know, getting out of university or trying to find jobs. And I think so one thing that is uh, perhaps more important is, is around economic inequality and inclusion. And I think that right now, um, given the, the high levels of inequality, especially in the United States, there is this, uh, the need to make sure that uh, the, the prosperity that is generated from our economic system is uh, more inclusive. Uh, otherwise, as you mentioned, we will see the rise of uh, politics of resentment and, and nativism, uh, which oftentimes has economic causes to it. So I, I very much take that point. And I would just make another one, which is when it comes to, uh, particularly around issues of technology, I think many of the uh, negative uh, externalities that have come from, you know, the, the, the current uh, phase of technology, particularly as it relates to social media, stem from uh, a lack of diversity among, you know, within Silicon Valley. I think that, you know, for the most part, um, it was a very, the people that were making uh, products and key decisions were very heterogeneous or very uh, homogenous. And I think that there very much is the need for um, greater diversity within uh, STEM, within particularly you know within tech companies, to make sure that uh, many of the that the the products that they are building are uh, have human rights in mind, uh, that they have the ways that uh, uh, that these can be abused by people or to target women and girls or members of the LGBTQ community. I mean, these were questions that were totally absent in, in many of the first generation of these technologies. Thankfully, now I think that they have been incorporated more and more, and it's it's been great to see that. Yeah, that's a great point. I mean, Zach, I'm going to come to you in a second, but Casper, anything to add on that? I mean, this is a very good point about how, the lack of diversity in Silicon Valley. I mean, what would you say to that? Yeah, and I hope you appreciate it. I just wanted to make sure you can also see that even when you work for a big technology company, you can have a breakdown in connectivity. So sorry about that. No, I, I think the point and, and what I was trying to say is that when you look back at the last couple of years, also during COVID-19, you know, the degree of digitalization in societies and communities have really made a difference, uh, either in a positive way or in a negative way. But it is not only about 
you know, geography about whether you live in Southern Europe or Northern Europe or in a particular state in the US. What we know also from our data set is that women has been proportionally harder hit also by COVID, uh, more job losses, etc. So I think there are many, many reasons why we need to focus a lot more on gender on these issues and why our recovery and resilient packages, uh, whether it's in the US or in, or in Europe, needs to have a, a very, very clear focus on, on making sure that it's inclusive and it has full focus on the challenges. And then you know, let me just be super honest. I think we have a, a significant problem also in the tech industry. Um, we, we need a better uh, gender equality. We need to focus a lot more on diversity and inclusion. I think that's something we're doing. It's not happening as fast as, as we want it to. But I think it's a really good point that Savannah is pointing out. You know, part of, of our common value framework across the Atlantic is equal opportunity is sort of you know the fundamental human rights that i think we all adhere to and that also makes it necessary for us to make progress on uh, on the gender side and then if, if you allow me susanna just on on the sustainability side i think it's such a fundamental question I mean, these days we're very focused towards what's happening towards the east here in europe but i think we have this looming climate crisis that are, are going to have such a big impact and i think the panel really highlighted that in, in their survey and in, in their discussions that we need to do more. And I think this is where companies will increasingly, if they're not already coming under scrutiny, we will be held to account for what we do. You know, we've, we have set ourselves a very ambitious agenda in Microsoft around sustainability, becoming uh, carbon negative and by 2030 and also reducing all our legacy emissions by 2050. But I actually think what we're increasingly finding out is that our biggest contribution to finding climate change and sustainability is actually for us to develop state-of-the-art technology tools, plug-and-play tools that will make it possible for smaller companies to also set very ambitious targets and to, for them to be able to measure and, and set the specific goals for themselves. So in other words, providing technology that will make it easier for everybody to uh, contribute and, and to make a contribution to what, what I think is going to be the biggest crisis and biggest challenge for all of us. Okay, thanks very much, Casper. Uh, Zach, um, Zach Kabowski, uh, would you like to, um, to come to the floor now with your, with your question? Thanks, Suzanne. And I'm, I'm so glad to be joining this event uh, this morning and to discuss all those important issues, but also to celebrate the results of the Next Gen Transatlantic Initiative. Um, I mean, my question is in no surprise about the situation in Ukraine. Um, is the transatlantic community prepared to respond uh, to the, a possible violent aggression of Russia in Ukraine? And what about the technological uh, concerns and cyber threats um, that this challenge uh, could raise? Yeah, anyone want to come in on that and our panelists, the whole situation in Ukraine, Adrian? Yeah, sure. To start us off on this, uh, thank you, Zach, for the for the question. This is certainly top of mind um, for for Freedom House and, and so many, and obviously those in Ukraine right now. Um, I really do think that uh, this is one place where we need to make sure that we're not uh, blaming the transatlantic relationship for uh, other issues. And I think that um, you know, when it comes to security, obviously. Uh, the bonds of NATO are continue to be very strong, but I, I read an op-ed um, in a in a Brussels-based uh, 
media outlet uh, relatively recently that was saying this was all about the, the fall of the transatlantic relationship, but then was not mentioning anything that the European Union was doing on, on the issue of, of Ukraine and Russia. So I do think that there is this challenging issue, whether it's Russia or China, that uh, you know, there are still differing views within, uh, particularly within the European Union on how the EU can be united on this issue. And I think that that's part of the difficulties around Ukraine is uh, it, that whether it's the Trump administration or the Biden administration is ensuring that there is unity uh, when it comes to some of the, the economic issues or the security issues that are in place when it comes to, you know, on Russia and Ukraine. And I think that, you know, getting back to that previous question, that there has to be a sort of cold reckoning on whether we are privileging the economic relationship that we have with some of these authoritarian powers, or are we going to stand up for democracy and human rights, particularly uh, when it's something like uh, the invasion of a of a sovereign uh, country, um, which is within the Europe's own neighborhood. Yeah, no, it's a very good point. I mean, look, this would be a, a topic for a long time, but I think that issue of the unity or lack of in Europe, and then, you know, where does power or should power or response lie? I mean, you know, NATO or the EU and, and the tension around that, and then just to maybe link into what we're saying about the economic relationship. I mean, this is where the EU has clout when it comes to sanctions, maybe not militarily, maybe not other way, but it is interesting that a lot of the debate here is very, I mean, I'm covering it here as a journalist constantly, it's, it's hugely uh, sensitive, it's secret, they're trying to, co you know, coordinate with the Americans on this, but, you know, building up a possible sanction list, how that impacts different countries and their own sensitivities is a highly complex uh, maneuver and uh, it, it, it's one of the one of the areas of discussion here at the moment we're nearly coming at the end so I just want to um I want to do a tiny quick like one, one minute whip around through our three panelists for some final thoughts but just to, to pick up on some of the questions we're seeing I like this one somebody was saying Andre Lissacrook I think that we often hear how complementary US and EU can be and US on tech and EU and regulation. But how effective is EU regulation really? It, for example, did the GDPR actually not strengthen big tech? You know, is the EU delusional about its true influence? So that's a good point. I mean, maybe we're kind of, I made a few sweeping comments there about the EU thinks this, America is doing that, but actually, you know, how good is it in terms of regulation? As we know, a lot of these proposals are very much watered down when it gets through the Parliament and, and the Council. We're seeing that now with the immediate, in the DMA and the DSA, the big tech regulations at the moment. We're only at the start of that, really. So um, let's see what the finished product is. Um, okay, just finally, quick um, quick uh, turnaround. Beatrice, maybe some final thoughts about what you took from, from uh, both this discussion and, and more generally on our next-gen uh, report. Uh, I promise one minute, I will be very brief, uh, but uh, to, to end and to link to what was just said, I think there's a very strong link between the fight against climate change and security too, and we shouldn't forget this, even NATO has climate change in, in its agenda, and it's not about just uh, global immigration, for example, but let's talk about the Western Balkans, not just Eastern Europe. I mean, the Western Balkans have been knocking to the European Union door for a long time, and China is investing a lot and we could do that also with the urgency of, of fighting 
or, or adapting or mitigating climate change. Uh, so my last uh, comment will be that uh, the next gen thinks that the climate crisis is a crisis in leadership, both at global and uh, local level. So here the transatlantic uh, bond uh, has a huge role to play. And I think uh, everyone from every corner of the world should be looking at us and expect us to, to lead this transformation. Great, thank you very much for that, Beatrice. Casper, over to you. Well, thanks very much. I, I think just a quick comment on, on the security element of it, because I think to some extent, Susanne, you said it correctly. This is not only a national security issue when we look about uh, cybersecurity. The digital economy is heavily impacted by cyber attacks. We're seeing an increasing trend on that. So also for that sake, we need to make sure that we are focusing more on mitigating the threats that are not going to disappear, unfortunately, in the next couple of years. And then I, I don't know if it's very clever of me to do this, but, but I think it's a fantastic report. I think the panel are pointing to, to some really interesting areas, by the way, including the necessity to regulate uh, artificial intelligence. I think that's spot on. There's one area where I disagree and where I actually wanted to provide sort of a little bit of a pitch, and that is the, uh, the, the focus on bilateral issues rather than multilateral issues. You know, I, I come from, from, a, from a diplomacy background, so I just wanted to say I think it is important also for the next generation of leaders that we don't underestimate the importance of multilateralism. I think we need strong international organizations to deal with trade issues, to deal with security issues, to deal with regulatory issues, whether it's the European Union, whether it's NATO, whether it's the United Nations. So I think if I can leave uh, you know, the, the panelists and, and, and the, the members with, with one thought, don't, estimate, don't underestimate the necessity of focusing on multilateralism. Thanks again. In our report, um, more of an emphasis on bilateralism rather than multilateralism. Finally, over to you, Adrian. Yeah, just real quick to to plus one everything that Beatrice and Casper have mentioned, and I think um, to say how important it is to be in discussion, um, you know, across the, the transatlantic relationship, and I think that's where uh, the next gen network is, and things like the next gen network are crucial to meeting a lot of the challenges that we've that we've brought up here, uh, where very much we do need more dialogue. We need more collaboration. Uh, this will be vital, I think, to making sure that the, not only the transatlantic relationship is strong, but also that we're defending the values uh, around technology, climate change, and, and democracy around the world. Thank you so much. And thank you very much to all our panelists, to Federico and Margarini earlier on. And um, please check out our report. Uh, the link is in our uh, Q&A box at the side. Uh, thank you very much to Microsoft. Thank you very much to our panelists. And thank you very much to the audience. Uh, delighted to uh, share uh, this really stimulating conversation. Uh, so thank you very much for all your participation. <laughs>